The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Precision Decisions in Multimodal Management of Early Stage NSCLC, Integrating EGFR Targeted Therapy in Perioperative Settings. Access the entire activity and complete the post test at peerview.com forward slash WRG 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Thanks so much for joining us, and thanks for supporting these types of symposium. Today, we're going to talk about precision decisions in multimodal management of early-stage non-small cell lung cancer, and in particular, integrating EGFR-targeted therapy in the perioperative settings. Um, I'd like to introduce myself. I'm Brendan Stiles. I'm at the Montefiore Einstein Cancer Center uh, in the Bronx, New York, with Montefiore Medical Center. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Helena Yu. I'm a medical oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. So we're going to talk about several things, and, and again, we really do hope to make it interactive. Uh, Helena is a, a world's expert on EGFR, and so please utilize her expertise to ask any questions that you want. Um, we're going to talk about understanding the gaps and opportunities for improvement. Um, we'll talk about the role of EGFR-targeted therapy in perioperative settings of non-small cell lung cancer with some of the latest updates, some of which we heard a little bit about this morning. And then we'll have a tumor board, and that's where we really hope to get some interactive discussion because often, as you all know, there's not clear-cut answers to some of these questions that we'll pose. And particularly integrating EGFR-targeted therapy into the multimodal treatment of patients in the neoadjuvant space, the adjuvant space, who do we select for adjuvant? I think that they're all relevant topics, as you probably get, got a sense this morning. I think to set the stage really for where we are and why we're thinking about it, um, I was laughing saying I'm going to have to try to pronounce all the names there on the right, but I, I certainly can't. But I think all of you know that it's a crowded space, that, that now we're not just talking about lung cancer, adenocarcinoma, we're talking about all these subtypes of cancer. And I think really, as, as Jamie Chaff, also from Sloan Kettering, laid out quite well this morning, we have to think about these early and earlier in the treatment pathway for patients with early stage disease. Yet, uh, gaps still remain. And, and this is, I think, particularly important. And, and Jamie had said, look, you know, every patient with stage 4 disease gets tested, gets NGS. But if you really look at real-world data, a lot of these patients actually aren't getting tested. And you see rates of testing um, for EGFR, ALK, whether it's getting done singly, whether any biomarkers getting done, we do pretty well. But, but many often get missed. If you look at the flat iron data on the right there, it, I think it raises two points. Number one, there's disparities in testing. And number two, people test, but sometimes they don't test smartly, and they don't use it and, and actually treat to the test. And so particularly there you see NGS tested prior to first-line therapy, just 26% for African-American patients and 32% for white patients. So really we have, we're missing the mark, I think, as the, as the bottom thing said, there's notable disparities in testing. These will certainly only be amplified as we move these, these drugs into the earlier stage space and as we try to sort our way through that, where we're just starting to get familiar with, with how to think about them. This is compounded by not only low rates of testing, but low rates of adjuvant uptake. And I think there are two really great studies in the past year, year and a half, that have really uh, explained that. This is the Violet study from Eric Lim in the UK. And you probably know randomized to VATs are open, so presumably motivated patients to, to be randomized to a surgical treatment, and we know how hard that is. But one of the things that really struck me from this was that of patients eligible for adjuvant therapy, the uptake really hovered around 50%. There wasn't really a tremendous benefit to open surgery. Um, and it's hard for me to really understand why this is, and these are generally stage two and three patients. But... Um, why did they not get there? Is it sort of a nihilism about the treatment? Is it something we as surgeons have done to them to, to sort of knock them off of that pathway? 
Now, Eric would sort of always take offense when I pointed that out, although I thought it was a really interesting point about the data, but, and, and he pointed out, I think, that, that really we're about the same here in the U.S., and so this is adjuvant uptake from Alchemist, so a national trial in the U.S., again, presumably motivated patients, and patients who were in the screening part of that but did not enroll in a treatment trial. And again, we see really poor rates of any adjuvant chemotherapy, just 57%, at least four cycles, just 44%. So we're really not doing as good a job as getting our patients to adjuvant therapy and completing adjuvant therapy. And if you compound that with the, with the idea that we're not always doing an adequate lymph node dissection, we're probably also missing a lot of patients who would be eligible for adjuvant therapy. So clearly areas where we have to do better, even apart from biomarker testing. I'm going to turn it over to Helena. All right, I heard that uh, we did go over Adora, but I will go over primarily the ESMO updates from this month. So what is the potential impact of adjuvant therapy after surgery? Um, I think there is a real question with um, adjuvant therapies. Are we delaying recurrence or are we actually curing patients? And I think, um, you know, there are several goals of adjuvant therapy. We might be trying to, of course, the ultimate goal is eliminating remaining disease, curing patients, and improving overall survival. Uh, Especially with targeted therapies, there's a question about are we suppressing uh, remaining disease, so controlling and preventing or delaying the time until there's overt clinical recurrence. And then, of course, you know, if, if we aren't doing neither of those things and we're causing our patients both financial cost and morbidity, that's unnecessary treatment. Um, so as, as you all know, and I'm sure have uh, heard many times before, Adora was really the first large randomized phase three study in a mutation-positive subset, so patients with EGFR mutant lung cancer with 1B, 2, or 3A um, fully resected disease. Uh, Patients got chemotherapy if their providers thought that that was appropriate, and then they were randomized to three years of osimertinib versus placebo. Primary endpoint was DFS with um, uh, a powered uh, secondary endpoint of OS uh, along with others. Um, So this is the original back in 2020 um, data that was published in the New England Journal that led to the approval um, that really showed, uh, you know, these curves for oncology are really striking, uh, a market improvement in DFS um, for the um, all patients, 1B to 3A, but also the kind of population of interest with more advanced disease, stage 2 and 3A. Um, and based on this, um, this study was stopped early, and in December of 2020, um, adjuvant was approved. Um, and just this month at ESMO um, in Paris, we, we, we did hear some updated data. So it's two additional years of follow-up. So um, with updated um, DFS data, they did not present overall survival data. Um, but, you know, looking at this, it really did show continued robust DFS benefit. Um, I draw your eyes to the 36-month time point. Um, so remember, patients got adjuvant osimertinib for three years. And so, uh, you know, clearly to the three-year time point, there is a clear, large separation of the curves. And I think one of uh, that, that does remain to some degree af- after three years and after osimertinib is stopped. But, um, you know, there is potentially some narrowing of, of the distance between the two curves um, after a- adjuvant osimertinib is stopped. And this is uh, the 1B, 2, and 3A. Um, and then I think uh, here's the, the, the forest plots. So looking at different subsets, and I think ones that are of interest are, um, you know, the different EGFR mutation subset. Um, one question was adjuvant chemotherapy, you know, um, in patients that got adjuvant chemotherapy and those that did not, there was um, a clear, consistent, maintained benefit of osimertinib um, in both populations. 
And then looking at um, sort of changes in um, the TNM staging, um, but even when updating to the eighth edition, again, continued uh, DFS benefit in these different stages. Um, one one sort of notable thing in a, a presentation that happened maybe about a year ago now was, um, as we know, osimertinib is a highly CNS-penetrant third-generation EGFR-TKI, um, and so there was really a, a, a nice market decrease in CNS recurrences uh, for patients who got adjuvant osimertinib, and this, as we know, does cause significant morbidity and mortality for our patients, um, and so this was um, recapitulated with updated data, slightly um, attenuated, but, but you can see clearly less recurrence um, in, in the different uh, frequent sites with adjuvant osimertinib. And then this is the updated CNS DFS. So for patients, um, patients on study did not routinely get CNS imaging, but in terms of clinical symptoms that led to um, CNS imaging, there was a clear improvement in, uh, or lengthening of CNS DFS with osimertinib. Um, and then, you know, the, the side effects of osimertinib are well known. It's uh, pretty wild-type sparing, um, but, but still has some significant um, toxicity. And, of course, for three years of adjuvant therapy, this becomes a larger issue. So the conclusions from that recent update really were that the um, median uh, sort of improvement in DFS was maintained um, with another two years of follow-up, a clear risk reduction of disease recurrence or death, 73%. um, And this was consistent across updated stages with the new eighth edition. um, And then, of course, maintaining clinical uh, improvement in the CNS DFS. So just reinforcing um, this Osimertinib as standard of care uh, for patients after resected EGFR mutant stage 1B, 2, and 3A. Um, And I think this really set the stage for a lot of other studies, which I think Brendan will talk about um, next. Thanks a bunch. That may not seem relevant, but I I, I will highlight a study. I don't know if Oliver Oliver Chalzner, but when we were at Cornell... We looked at the rates of EGFR, and it kind of gets back to the first question of testing and do you know. And we don't really know what the rates are in early-stage patients, I think. Um, but we were shocked when we looked at over 1,000 patients from 2015 when we started testing to 2019. The rate of EGFR mutation positivity was 37% in our cohort, and it was really shocking. We did operate on a lot of Asians and never smokers. and never smokers, it was almost 50%. But even in previous smokers, it was 18%. And so this question about you know, what to do for these patients was really popping up all the time. And I think that as we start to test more routinely, it'll be relevant for everybody. We heard this morning from, uh, from again from Jamie that the time to sort of start thinking about targeted therapy is now. That the I guess that the the juice is worth the squeeze, right? Um, and you know, obviously, the others out there already are. So Nia Dura was was touched on a little bit, but this is a phase three trial testing the benefit of treating patients with resectable EGFR mutated non-small cell lung cancer with neoadjuvant therapy. In stage 2 to 3B patients, EGFR, common mutations. And some, some have sort of criticized the, the complication of the three arms, but, but to me it makes sense. I think, you know, there's, there's a general feeling that we want to give some kind of cytotoxic therapy to neoadjuvant patients so they don't progress. That's got the chemotherapy arm there. Placebo, you know, some have questioned placebo versus chemotherapy as maybe not being standard of care, particularly as we have neoadjuvant immunotherapy, but, but we have a dura, and so those patients could still get OC afterwards. And so I, I think that's an appropriate arm and I also think the single-agent osimertinib is, is appropriate as well. The endpoints here will be MPR, PCR, um, and, and you see adjuvant is left to sort of real-world decisions, investigator choice, just like Adura, um, looking at EFS and OS. 
patients will be stratified, as, as we've seen with other trials, by stage 1 and 2, non-Asian, um, and by their EGFR mutations. And there's good data from the neoadjuvant space. This is Neil Chudger and David Jones um, wrote this paper previously about thoroscopic lobectomy. I'm sure that many of you in the room have operated after TKIs. I think, like many things, they get a bad name, and the same was true with immunotherapy because at the beginning of the experience, we were operating on patients who had treated for a while rather than with short-term neoadjuvant regimens. But the point here is that it's safe to do, and I think variable responses to neoadjuvant therapy depending on the duration and the type of treatment and whether there's hyalonodal disease. Also really important to point out <clears throat> the conversation, I think, about even earlier disease, Nodura 2, which is a stage 1A adjuvant phase 3 study. Um, we, we saw from the, the, the CLGB study and, and Nasser al-Turki talked this morning that we still have a problem with systemic recurrence, even in our earliest patients. The question is how to identify those patients. Or, you know, will TKIs help? Um, and so this trial is set to, to answer that with stratification by high or low risk, by EGFR, um, mutation type and, and by race. And again, it's an adjuvant osimertinib trial adjuvant for three years after surgery for early stage patients. And high risk, we can debate about the, the question of high risk, and I think that's a great debate in the stage 1B setting whether or not to use adjuvant. Um, but invasive tumor size greater than two centimeters, lymphovascular invasion, and, and sort of certain histologic subtypes that we know from, from great work at Memorial and other places that are associated with higher risks of local regional recurrence. Then, of course, there's the LCMC4 leader study. Um, I'm particularly proud of this one because the Lung Cancer Research Foundation is sort of helping to oversee it and to run it. You've probably seen this umbrella many, many times in the past, but I think it's finally coming to fruition um, with, with arms and multiple targeted therapies, and hopefully we'll get some more information not just on EGFR tumors but across a range of oncogene-driven tumors. And that is most of what we have. We're doing great. I think we're going to turn it over and, and probably sit down. And so the data you've seen, and, and I think we've talked about but what we really wanted to do, and I think what Peerview wants to do and others, is, is hear your thoughts and opinions about how to manage some of these. It looks so great and clean when we put the data up there, and it seems real easy, but I think all of us know that in real life it's, it's not quite so straightforward. And so we're going to go through a couple different cases and see what everybody thinks. We hope that people will vote and hopefully um, put in questions or come to the microphone and sort of discuss why, and in particular where we have discrepancies in voting or thought patterns, we'll, we'll ask some of you who, who voted a different way to maybe come up and talk about a little bit. Okay, I think we have three cases, and so actually I'm going to go back. Um, so again, these are all um, uh, sort of perioperative cases that have a, an EGFR kind of related question. Um, so case number one is a 47-year-old former smoker, 15 pack years, presents with cough, uh, workup revealed a 4.5 centimeter right upper lobe mass, enlarged clinical hilar lymph node, a full uh, staging, uh, does not show metastatic disease, but did get a bronch biopsy EBUS, demonstrating um, or confirming adenocarcinoma in the right upper lobe mass, as well as an 11, 11, level 11 lymph node. <clears throat> um, so definitely want everyone's opinion. How would we manage this patient? Um, would we take them directly to the OR for resection. Would this be a candidate for um, checkmate, neoadjuvant chemotherapy plus nivolumab, then resection, um, chemo, then resection, molecular testing for EGFR mutations, uh, referral for concurrent chemotherapy and radiation? I'm not sure. Um, even in a former smoker, um, you know, of course, we would want to test for molecular uh, mutations. I'm interested, in, and I think probably here in this room we'll all say that, right? It sounds right and sounds very academic to say, but what about the practicalities? And what I'm interested, Helena, what you think if 
you know, say they did the EBIS, but they didn't really get enough tissue to send for molecular tests, and, and how long do you wait? And the patient's anxious, they want to go across the street to Cornell instead of Memorial. So how do you handle that, and do you ask for a rebiopsy? If, if, and what are, I'm interested to hear what other people in the room think, too. I, I think that that's really tough. I think that, um, you know, depending on your place where you practice, a lot of times the diagnosis has already been made, and we have the tissue, and we have sort of a finite amount of that. And, um, again, patients are reluctant to sort of get more testing. They want this out. Um, and so, you know, I think if your uh, institution has some sort of rapid molecular testing, particularly for EGFR being one that's, you know, relevant in the perioperative space, um, that would be ideal. But I, I definitely think it's a challenge. I, I don't know if you guys went over it this morning, but, you know, the Checkmate chemo nivolumab study excluded patients um, that had EGFR or ALK um, alterations. And there really is a clear concern for, se- you know, sequencing immunotherapy followed by targeted therapy, we definitely see higher rates of immune-related toxicities. And so I think in particular for the right patient, you know, neoadjuvant chemo with nivolumab really might limit some of the sort of adjuvant options that that patient has. Um, So that would be something I I would want to highlight. I'm surprised. I'd love to hear from somebody who said that they would go straight to the OR. And I'm not surprised that people said that. I'm surprised that, that more people didn't say that. I think this was a well clinically staged patient with stage two disease. And from what I gather, you know, although a lot of places might do neoadjuvant, a lot of people in earlier question answers said, hey, it's, it's not stage three. We're going to take that patient to the OR and do adjuvant at the end. And so who said that and, and why? And, and it seems pretty defendable to me, but I'm interested to hear what other people think. And I'll start calling on people's names. I'm staring at Steve Broderick. I know Mark probably has different thoughts about this, too. Somebody give me something. What do you think, Steve? You can yell it out. We'll repeat it. But so are you getting the EGFR just because to to want to know if they're eligible for neoadjuvant immunotherapy? Is that that the rationale there? Correct. For the reasons that that Helen was was mentioning, that that, we excluded those patients when we had known driver mutations in in 816. Um, So I I don't know that the 816 data necessarily applies to patients with a targetable mutation. I think there's some data in the the medical oncology literature that they don't respond as well to immunotherapy in the presence of those mutations. And uh, and then there's the possibility of increased toxicity if we want to add a targeted therapy in the adjuvant setting. And so um, we, we do molecular testing reflexively. I think the question you raised is the critical one. What if you don't have enough tissue? Oftentimes patients come from other centers with a minute fragment of adenocarcinoma on a biopsy, and, and we really do try to um, re-biopsy those patients in, in whatever way we can, even if that means just needle the primary um, just to get that going. It still takes three weeks for us. We can do sometimes an expedited um, IHC just for ALK and EGFR uh, in order to plan for neoadjuvant therapy. And one of the things we do in the metastatic setting to sort of hedge our bets is um, sometimes, you know, if we don't have molecular back but somebody's symptomatic, you can, and, you know, you could start with chemotherapy. In this, in this setting, you could start with the neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And then by cycle two, you know, you would have data on molecular testing and you could either decide to continue with chemo alone or think about adding in IO. And so I think that allows us, you know, sort of um, more adaptive management, but, but keeping the patient out of, uh, out of harm or, you know, giving them the opportunity to get what would best serve them. Mark, what do you think? Would you have just taken this thing out, right? You can give a little teaso. Yes, sir. 
or give us afterwards? No, I, I just I voted for testing free GFR. If, if, most of our patients in this setting, if they're if they don't have a mutation, are getting checkmate, and so we're not taking patients like this to the OR right away anymore. Is there anybody in the room who doesn't believe in neoadjuvant therapy for stage two patients? That's amazing. One year in, yeah, <laughs> it's good. Just in the community in Denver, we have a number of just last week, very similar patient, and the oncologist was like, oh, just, you know, take it out, and I'll treat him afterwards for four-centimeter tumor and one hyalur node. So not necessarily in a situation to refuse operating on that patient and, you know, not allow him to have treatment, but certainly I think the benefit for him would be to get treated up front. Helena, there was a question about liquid biopsies, and you sort of mentioned rapid IHC, but what do you think about makes sense? Is the limit of detection enough in this? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think it's coming, um, but I think that the current liquid biopsy CT DNA assays really are not sensitive enough to, to really detect um, disease in this early stage setting. Um, but I do definitely foresee that to be, um, you know, potentially diagnostic up front, but certainly, you know, I think there are a lot of um, kind of ongoing studies or soon-to-start studies that are going to use CT DNA positivity post- um, definitive um, therapy to, to really help hone in on who would best benefit from adjuvant therapy. So that's definitely the future. I see Dr. Spicer with the microphone. Hang on. Oh, yeah. So um, I, I often hear concerns about uh, how long it takes to get biomarker testing, and people are talking about three weeks or four weeks or five weeks or six weeks. I think especially in EGFR disease, it's worth looking at those survival curves where you see that if you stop the medication over three years after they've had the, uh, their operation, there are people who met out in the brain. Um, so most of the time, uh, it's a systemic disease. I think taking the extra time to figure out when we're talking about a few weeks is, is worthwhile. Obviously, I'm not advocating that we just uh, accept these, these long turnaround times, but they're worthwhile, I think, to have the right treatment plan for the patient. Are you just saying that because you guys have long times in Canada and that's your No, it's story? 10 days at McGill uh, maximum. In fact, it's probably shorter than that. Well, so the, the pushback there will be, well, we don't want to take a patient who's surgically resectable and make them not resectable. I'm probably not as worried about the EGFR patients, but worried about the patients who don't have a, have a targetable thing. What, do you, what would you say to that? I, I haven't really seen it in my practice. I, there's one patient uh, I remember from maybe five or six months ago who looked like she had a completely operable stage 3A with a single station. We enrolled her on a trial for chemo IO. She got her pretreatment PET and she had bone mets. Um, and around the same time, her, uh, her NGS came back uh, with MET Exxon 14. So these, you know, yes, but no. I, th I think we, we learn things about... Uh, about patients who met out that quickly that, that probably they might not have benefited from an upfront surgical resection. I think that's a great point. And I think one, one point, uh, you know, the Adora data really gives us really nice long-term data about recurrences. And so I, I really like his, your point about how, you know, even for stage 1B, you know, it was, I think, five-year survival was 60-something percent. So I think, again, this really often is a systemic disease. And, and seeing those curves narrow, you know, we might be curing some patients, but for some people, um, you know, we are potentially just, you know, delaying recurrence. Um, one question I think that might be good to, to answer now because it's relevant was someone asked, does a targetable mutation override chemo IO in the induction setting? 
Um, and I, I guess my, I wouldn't hear what Brendan says, but my answer would be, I think that, you know, the mutation doesn't, you know, one mutation doesn't fit all, I guess, in, in the sense that, um, you know, when, when we think about kind of driver mutations in lung cancer, I think of them kind of in like different tiers with like, you know, EGFR and ALK, RET inhibitors, you know, with 80 plus percent response rate and really long PFS um, as, as things that, um, you know, obviously we want to go to first because they're far superior to other systemic therapies like chemotherapy. And then there's Medexon 14, BRAF, um, you know, treatments that are a little bit more toxic with response rates more in the, you know, 40, 50 percent range. Um, so I think it's different. I think that, you know, as someone mentioned, Checkmate A16 excluded EGFR and ALK, um, uh, but did not exclude other driver mutations. And so I think with the data that we have now, I would, I would really limit it to those two in terms of um, limitation. I was going to ask you a follow-up question on that. I, I think Kathy Hsu's study at Columbia with chemo and Atizo had a couple of path responders in the EGFR setting. But, but is it the end of the world if an EGFR patient gets induction chemo IO? And you probably see a lot of patients in your practice who have gotten IO who, who, who you now know need EGFR-based therapy. How, how do you handle that transition? Do you think that the time from neoadjuvant to adjuvant is, is enough sort of wash out of the immunotherapy? I think it's a decent, I mean, I think it is a more of a washout. So we looked at this retrospectively at MSK, um, and, you know, I guess the first thing I want to note is that really the of the EGFR TKIs, it really was osimertinib that, that sort of had the excessive risk signal. We didn't see that with Erlotinib or the other earlier generation TKIs. Um, the kind of, uh, I feel like, inflection point was three months. So if patients had their last dose of IO, uh, within three months of starting the TKI, it was 25% of people that were hospitalized with immune-related toxicities. So we saw pneumonitis, colitis, hepatitis. Um, so I think with adjuvant therapy, you're kind of getting around that three-month uh, mark, depending on whether you're going to give them a little bit more chemo or how long it takes them to recover. Um, you know, it's I, I think it's a, just one of those sort of thoughtful discussions with your with your patients. But um, it's always better if you know up front, because I think um, you know, no one can argue that those DFS curves for um, osimertinib um, really would likely be far superior to the, the, the chemo IO that they would get up front. Okay, so case one continues. Um, so uh, you, you, you all, as you, as you asked for, um, got the molecular testing. Um, so a little complicated because they had both an EGFR exon 19 deletion. PDL1 expression was 90%. Um, does that change anything? I think these, uh, actually, the answers are a little bit different. So um, the thought is, you know, take them to the OR for resection, chemo afterwards, still do the chemo IO and then resect, um, new adjuvant chemo, resection, observe, chemo, resection, three years of adjuvant OC, um, again, current concurrent chemo RT, uh, I'm not sure. It's an interesting question, I believe, given the chemotherapy up front gets it in a little bit better, but I think you could arguably take them to the OR if it's clinical stage two and give the chemotherapy afterward in a good performance status patient if they really wanted to get to the OR. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that strategy would be very reasonable here as well if you were confident you could get them to adjuvant therapy. I think the only other thing I... Uh, let's see, Neo doing... Yeah. Um, again, I think that one thing that maybe this audience isn't quite so aware of, you know, PDL1 expression as a biomarker for response to IO, I think doesn't always hold as strongly for some of these mutation positive subsets. Um, so there was um, a study out of UCLA that took patients with EGFR mutant lung cancer, high PDL1 expression greater than 50%, and gave them first line um, pembrolizumab as monotherapy. Um, and zero percent responded. So I think you know it, it's a challenge to be a little bit swayed by the the high PDL one expression in these driver mutation subsets. 
I thought there was one responder that turned out to yes. be not a mutation or something. Yeah. It's great the, the one responder um, ended up not having any shape permutation. <laughs> I omitted it for succinctness. <laughs> but... Should we go to the next? Yeah. So, oh, keep going back. Okay. Um, so uh, as a, a lot of you recommended, patient got neoadjuvant chemo, went for resection. Um, path from the resection showed a little bit of residual disease. Um, in the primary tumor, micrometastatic disease actually in a level 7, um, and persistent disease in level 11. Thoughts about what to do now? More chemo, um, post-op RT, osimertinib, atezolizumab, observe, I'm not sure. So it looks like, obviously, with the EGFR mutation, with the Adora data, um, most um, people would do the osimertinib. As a med-onc, I was curious, I asked Brendan, you know, do, uh, I'm curious, do most surgeons, if there's positive and two disease post-op, refer for post-op radiation? I think based on the recent data, if I see these patients, I actually tend not to refer them for radiation. <coughs> curious to hear what people think. Yeah, I find that our radiation oncologists still make some arguments, and I don't think it's it's dead in some cases, but but generally as practice, I think routine referrals should not be done. Just a quick question here. My, my preferred treatment would have been preoperative chemo, surgery, and OC, as indicated here, but um, I'm not sure what the situation is in the U.S., but in Canada, if that patient happens to be downstaged with chemo to YPT, you know, basically a stage one, um, I'm not convinced we, we have access to osimertinib in that setting. So what are, is, is that an issue here in the States? Will payers cover even if they have a, they've been downstaged to stage one? We, which is why we tend to take our EGFR mutants with stage two or three disease directly to the OR to avoid that issue, even though I think getting the chemo in the preoperative setting is preferable. That's a great question. I, I haven't run into sort of market downstaging with the, the pre-op chemo, but I don't know if anyone else has any experience with that. It's, I tend to feel like our, you know, if you, if it's, you know, that, that there isn't so much nuance in, in, in the reimbursement that, that that would be caught, but I'm not sure. Not sure. Let's keep, should we keep going? Case two. A uh, 79-year-old never smoker gets a pre-op uh, chest x-ray before a hip replacement that shows a solitary 1.5-centimeter left-sided lung nodule, undergoes lobectomy and, and lymph node dissection. Final stage shows a PT2A N0M0, stage 1B. Um, path report, tumors poorly differentiated, sarcomatoid uh, features. There's some paraneural and lymphovascular invasion. Uh, mutation testing shows an L858R mutation. Um, you discuss chemotherapy, but he uh, refuses. Um, and, and of note, he does have a history of viral cardiomyopathy. EF is 45%, so just below normal. He's fit, plays golf, exercises regularly. Um, with this clinical situation, 1B, what would you recommend for this patient? Osimertinib times three years. Observe, I'm not sure. A little bit of a difference of opinion here. I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think 1Bs, it's, you know, where we are just asking what, what, what we do here. Um, I think that, you know, I would say, you know, even with 1Bs, there's a clear risk of, um, you know, sort of recurrence over time. Um, and, you know, I, I would, if this person saw me, I would recommend osimertinib. I think one nuance to also bring up, which you might not be aware of, um, you know, osimertinib has probably a, you know, 3% risk of potential cardiomyopathy. Um, so I do get baseline echoes in my patients and 
Um, he was sort of, you know, EF right, right below normal or uh, slightly below normal, so I probably would proceed and, uh, you know, with discussion, but that's something to, to bring up if the EF was lower. Um, and, and since he's a 1B, it would really be sort of up, up for discussion. What's the time course, the cardiomyopathy? It's, it's, um, it's not, it can be sort of random and idiopathic. So I think, um, I would say for maybe two thirds, it's within the first couple months. Um, but I've definitely had patients like a year and a half in suddenly develop shortness of breath or lower extremity edema. And, you know, maybe we're worried about progression, but then, you know, we look and they have, you know, sort of clinical congestive heart failure. So rare, but definitely see it. How hard do you push the eighth edition one B's to get chemo or do you just tell them the OCLN's Okay. If yeah, I mean, I, I think, and this guy's elderly, you know, I, I, I think that that's, and I would say that in the community, what we're seeing for Medonc is, and, and I don't think this is right, but I think that, you know, with the approval of osimertinib, even for stage twos and threes, a lot of times people are just kind of omitting the chemo and going straight to um, osimertinib for our EGFR mutant patients. And I, and I, I would just caution, I think that, um, you know, we have not yet seen survival data. Um, and, and not to say that, you know, pre- preventing or delaying overt clinical progression is not meaningful, but, um, you know, it's real, uh, really up whether we're, we're truly curing or what percentage of patients we might be curing. We have one more case. All right, one more case. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit about other options here. So 52-year-old Hispanic female, never smoker, super healthy, presented with cough and hemoptysis. And I'll show you the scan, a huge mass. You know, it's hard to tell sort of what's the obstructive component, what's mass, but measures 9.6 centimeters. Endobronchial um, extension, which you can see there, um, coming right up to the orifice of the left upper lobe. And she has a really big level 7 node that's positive by bronchodebus, and she has an EGFR mutation. <clears throat> So here you see this thing sort of on the underside of the PA obstructing the bronchus, but but some of that's mass too that lights up on the PET scan. And not subtle subcranial adenopathy. So primary tumor is 15, level 7 node is 8, and there's a little AP window node that's kind of SUV2 indeterminate, and her brain looks okay. So by staging, she's T4N2, stage 3B. So... 52 and motivated, excellent performance status and pulmonary function. What do do people think? I'd put this poll together um, on social media. I thought it was clever because I gave two radiation options to look at like radiation was less than surgery. But uh, people had voted actually more for radiation when I put it out broadly. I'm interested to see, though, that uh, the the group here seems to favor 39% with neoadjuvant chemotherapy, surgery, and adjuvant OC. And so maybe who said that and what the idea to, to shrink the tumor or you think you have to do a pneumonectomy or what, uh, um, maybe somebody want to compare and contrast that idea. We weren't so sure she was going to get a great bang for a buck with chemotherapy and she was hemoptysizing and she wanted to keep on working. Um, so I'll show you what, what we decided to do. We talked about it a lot, and we sort of thought she's pretty marginal 3B. She's almost the equivalent of systemic disease. And so we talked about it a lot with her and talked with the group and decided to just go with induction OC, almost give her sort of the equivalent of systemic treatment and see what happened. We didn't have uh, neoadur and didn't feel strongly about combining chemo with osimertinib which she tolerated great, and, and you see, you know, we talked yesterday, some people were talking about cytostatic versus cytotoxic, but she had a marked response, and you see that tumor really got smaller. You can see it coming out of the superior segment of the lower lobe there. 
um, and the, the post-obstructive nature as well as the tumor itself shrunk significantly. This is one of those remarkable responders and others have written about it and talked about it. We were able to do a pretty straightforward vatslovectomy and, and, and she did great from a pulmonary function point of view. She didn't miss it. It had been obstructed beforehand anyway. And she had um, a little bit of viable tumor, major path response. By definition, she was right at 10% viable tumor and she had, interestingly, she had a significant response in the subcranial node as well. But final stage now, though, because she had persistent disease, is T2A and 2. So what do you think now? Lady with heavy disease burden, bulky N2 disease, you know, so heavy disease burden, we've got its systemic therapy, bulky N2, maybe port. Um, I can't remember if I said PDL, but she was strongly PDL1 positive as well. Three or four, but probably the, I'd do the chemo. Um, and it looks like that's what most people would, would do. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you, you downstaged her, you're treating her like she's locally advanced. She's fit, so I'd want to give her the chemo, and then and then I'd follow that with three years of osimertinib. What do you think about? Uh, I'm interested if any surgeons in the room want to weigh in on this. You know, surgery knowing sort of your margins after neoadjuvant TKI, after neoadjuvant IO, and, and you see a tumor shrink, but you know, particularly maybe with the TKI, where you're not sure that cytotoxic things have gone away. How do you how do you think about margins? Should we have just done a pneumonectomy there? What uh, I was interested to see the pneumonectomy data versus the sort of R1 and R2 data that um, that Steve presented this morning. Um, I was saying, you know, pneumonectomy. You know, when when there's disease before that clearly needs a pneumonectomy or a sleeve, are you comfortable doing a lobe if you see a good clinical response? How do you know that there's not going to be microscopic disease? You're going to be in one of those R1, R2 situations. Yeah, you don't. Uh, you don't know that. Um, uh, you know, sort of anecdotally or, or personally, I'm kind of a believer that you do the resection you thought you had to do in the first place. Um, in this case, uh, it looked like maybe a pneumonectomy based on the first scan and the endobronchial uh, uh, photos that you showed. Uh, probably what I would have done is is cut that bronchus and frozen the bronchial margin in the operating room and, and made that decision. Um, it didn't come up. I thought Dr. D'Amico would ask me during the presentation this morning, but you know that we all use sort of de- different definitions, I think, of R0 resection. If you actually look at the NCCN guidelines, um, if the highest resected node is positive, that's an R1 resection in the NCCN guidelines. And in 816... Um, is it R1 or R uncertain? It's I R1 still in yeah. NCCN. Um, in 816, the oncologists submitted on the, uh, on the, the data forms R0, R1, or R2. So if, if you had a positive paratracheal node, had a lobectomy, and that paratracheal node had residual disease in it, that's coded as an R1 resection. So um, I think it's really, as surgeons, we tend to think I got the whole primary tumor out and the bronchial margin and the vascular margin was negative. But I think uh, we need to sync up our definitions with the med-oncs in that regard in terms of what's really an R0 or R1 resection as we look at that moving forward. John's wildly waving his hand in the back. Well, I mean, that, this was <laughs> eye-opening to hear Stephen say this because that explains a lot of the discrepancies around R0, R1, R2, and Checkmate 1.6. I think I was the only surgical PI, uh, site PI in this, on the study and, you know, surgeons are used to having those conversations with their pathologists and interpreting the uh, R1, R0. 
th this is why we need to be in at least co-PI scenarios for periadjuvant studies so that we can assist with the data collection because you can imagine the implications, all the debates we have about, uh, about these data when, when maybe they're not entered, you know, in the, in the way we, we see them. So just a comment. There's any other comment? There's one quick question that I, I'd want to answer. Um, someone asked, how do you manage EGFR mutant stage 3 disease uh, for a resected patient? Would you combine dervalumab with osimertinib um, or use them sequentially? Um, I just I think that, to be clear, we, we as in systemic disease, for metastatic disease, we did try to combine dervalumab and osimertinib, both on their own, have a less than 5% risk of pneumonitis, but in combo, we saw synergy. 38% of patients had um, clinically significant pneumonitis, so I definitely would not combine them. Um, and then with that concern for sequential use, I think you have to pick which one you're going to do. Um, and so I think a good question is, you know, in the stage 3 concurrent chemo-RT, you know, um, scenario, that, that becomes more of an issue, but, but don't combine. Very well, almost out of time. Closing thoughts? No, I think it's been, uh, you know, it's always nice to, to see sort of uh, other perspectives, so thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for everybody for participating, and, and thanks to Peerview for putting it on and to AZ for sponsoring, but thanks, everybody. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash WRG 860. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from AstraZeneca.